0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, January 13th, 2020. And I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria. And I want to give a shout out right at the top to the many, many supporters who make Talk Nerdy possible, who keep it free to download for everybody anywhere who wants to listen to this show. If you want to pledge your support, all you've got to do is visit patreon.com slash talknerdy to learn more. This week, I want to give a shout out to some very special people, including Jeffrey Sewell, Brian Holden, um, David J.E. Smith, the Zombie Drummer, Phil Tiber, Dudas Infinitas, Ulrika Hagman, Pasquale Gelati, And I also want to thank somebody special, Mary Neva. But of course, she asked that I not give her a shout out, but instead give a shout out to her son who turned her on to Talk Nerdy. So thank you so much to Jim Cooperschmidt, because you're the best. Yes, you are. Actually, everybody listening, you're the best. Um, But... Special props to Jim. All right, guys, I'm super excited about this week's show because I have the opportunity to have a really detailed chat with Dr. Thomas D. Seeley. He's the Horace White Professor in Biology at Cornell Um, He's in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior, teaches about animal behavior, but his research is really focused on the behavior and social life of honeybees. He's written several books, and he's won a ton of awards. I didn't even realize this when we spoke, but he received the Alexander von Humboldt Distinguished U.S. Scientist Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Gold Medal Book Award, and he's also been elected a fellow of both the Animal Behavior Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. But he's most proud of having had a species of bee named after him. Yeah, that is like a huge honor. His newest book is called The Lives of Bees The Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild. So without any further ado, here he is, Dr.
1: Thomas Seeley.
0: Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It, it's my pleasure, Car, to be with you today.
0: <laughs> so, we are going to be talking about your newest book, The Lives of Bees, The Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild. But before we dive into that book, um I wanna get a little bit of background because of course you are the bee guy. You are like the expert in this field. And this is not anywhere close to your first book about bees. You've written, I'm trying to, to see here, one, two three, nope, four books previous to this one. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right. Good, yep, you're well done.
0: <laughs> and so the difference between this one specifically is um, is that we are so used to thinking about honeybees and thinking about kept bees, right? Bees in hives that people tend to in order to produce honey, whether it's at like a commercial scale or just like backyard beekeepers. But of course, this species of bee was a wild, is a wild species that we then utilize. It's not like we bred them to be honeybees.
1: Yes. The honeybee is an unusual um, animal that humans have relied on extensively for thousands of years, but we've never been very good at breeding them. And that's because of the one feature of their biology, which is that the matings occur when the queen flies out of a hive and she flies up into the sky and flies off and flies away and then mates with drones from wherever, from other colonies wherever in the, in the area. So we, we haven't had the, the opportunity to tightly breed their biology. So they are, I like to say the honeybee is still basically a wild animal. And we see that very clearly when beekeepers have their colonies living in their hives, but then those colonies in the spring cast swarms of bees, that's, and those swarms fly out and move into the woods and do just fine. So, the be and the, wow. so the bees are s- still very much a, a self-sustaining wild creature.
0: Oh, that's so interesting! And it almost seems like it's probably quite good for their genetic diversity that they breed in that way. It seems like it would prevent a lot of bottlenecks or a lot of kind of um, potential inbreeding.
1: Yes, the, it is. You're, that's a very good point. That um, their ability to a queen when she goes out and mates, it's very important to her that she captures a lot of genetic diversity, and she does that by mating with about 15 different drones. And we now know that the reason she's, it's important for the bees to have a lot of diversity in each of their colonies is it helps them fight diseases. These are insects that live in large groups, they have a lot of diseases, especially of their brood, which are developing in this warm and humid environment inside the nest or hive. And so they, uh, the bees have to deal with diseases. And the, one of the key things is to have a lot of diversity among the members of the colony. So this feature of their biology that keeps them wild keeps them healthy, too.
0: Fascinating. So, I there's so many questions I have about like, you know, the social structure and the hive structure and all that. But maybe before we get into what we know now about bees, we can take a little bit of a step back, like the natural history mm-hmm. of honeybees. Because have we really been keeping them almost as long or longer than we've been, I don't know, trying to domesticate animals?
1: Uh- we're not sure when the domestication or the keeping of bees, we shouldn't mm-hmm. say domestication, the keeping of bees started. We know that the, the oldest records we have go back um, about 4,500 years ago. These are um, paintings in uh, Egyptian temples that show quite um, sophisticated beekeepers. Um, wow. However, our other animals that, that have been domesticated or the start of agriculture and farming, that goes back about, Ten or eleven thousand years, so somewhere Mm -hmm. is between those two times. But what humans have been doing with bees goes back to even before we were humans. I think, in that humans Hmm. have always greatly enjoyed honey. It was the original source of real sweet sweetness for humans, and so we look. If you look at the other um, great apes, the Mm-hmm. Gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, they all are honey hunters. They go all go out and find <laughs> nests of, of bees and steal their honey. And I think humans have been doing that long, long for thousands. You know, we've been around humans of maybe 300,000 years, modern humans. and I bet all of those times those people were um, doing just as the other primates do, um, honey hunting and, and enjoying the bees' honey.
0: And so how did we... <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm sure you don't know the answer
0: to this question, but it seems like such a dangerous proposition, right? I guess the nutritional value, the high caloric content and the sweet taste um, was worth it. But it it seems interesting that the first person or the first ape or the first, you know, animal to say, I'm going to brave it. (laughs) I don't care if I get stung.
1: (laughs) You know, that's a very good point because you do have to you just have to suck it up <laughs> and um, but you have but the which is quite revealing uh, in the sense that yes people were willing to endure the pain of the bees stings and that we also have from cave paintings these drawings that show people climbing up vines and primitive ladders sometimes falling off to get up to the nests of bees on cliff sides so yes the, the honey has been in a, a very powerful lure and you know, that, mm-hmm. I think it's hard for us to appreciate today, with so with sugar so plentiful and so um, easily accessed, just what what it was like for people before the before humans were even farmers to um, to get honey. I mean, the you know we know from the Bible. I don't know if there really was a um, you know everything in the Bible is accurate, but. Um, the Israelites were um, told that they would find a uh, be led to a land of milk and honey and that uh, mm-hmm. so honey, I think uh, the flavor of honey has has a power which we can't fully appreciate with our today in our world of you know sugar everywhere,
0: yeah and it's it's interesting that you know it's not only human beings or the great apes that have kind of utilized honey or or realized that honey has such power and such potential i mean i'm i'm remembering like that there are african birds that are kind of commonly known as honey guides which people will utilize to find honey because they themselves are attracted to to these beehives
1: yes that's right it's uh the honey guides are go off and they attract the attention of people and once they the honey guides first find a nest of bees and they you know, go attract people by making certain sounds. And then uh, the humans have learned to recognize, oh, that's a honey guide. It wants us to, it, wants, it knows where there's a nest. And then it, the honey guide will lead the people in steps of about 50 yards, and sometimes a little longer, back to the bees' nests. And then the humans play an important role. They open up the nests, you know, which is something the, the honey guide birds cannot do. Mm. And the honey's the Humans then take out some of the honey and they pull out the combs. But there's a lot of spillage of the brood of the bees and the honey. And I think the birds are particularly interested in the brood, the larvae and the pupae. That's the most nutritious uh, yeah. thing for them.
0: And we're kind of not as interested in that part, or at least not in modern kind of honey honey um, production.
1: That's right. Yep. Yes. Oh, but interesting. Our, but our brains are really wild uh, wired up, not wild up. <laughs> <laughs> wired up wired up to respond to sweetness and that would the original edit that probably evolved originally not for motivating us to get honey but for enabling us to sense which which fruits are the most rewarding the cal- mm. uh, calorific this yeah. which ones are fully ripe and sweet
0: Absolutely. And to kind of counter to that, to avoid anything that might be potentially harmful or dangerous to us Mm -hmm. that might be more bitter in Mm -hmm. flavor. Um, It's so cool to think about that, that this is a kind of, I mean, obviously what we know about evolution, um, and it always bears repeating, is that there's no specific path, there's no guide, there's no end goal, that this is just a series of like strange random mutations and pressures that nature you know exhibits at that time for no reason other than what is um, but it's it's always so interesting to see kind of co-evolution scenarios, these ecological scenarios where um, specific species co-evolved along with other specific species, and there's these complex interplays that um, are really valuable to to all of the organisms involved
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes, and the one, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, one of the curious things about honeybees is that Humans and honeybees have lived together for a long time, but again, because we have not controlled their matings, we've not been able to shape their genetics, and uh, thus we. There's still still a, an animal that thrives on its all, all on its own.
0: Oh, I love that. There's something almost like romantic about that. That like you know these organisms that can't be tamed, and it's it's kind of like we have the privilege of being able to. Um, to benefit from the literal fruits of their labor um and oh, and yes. it's kind of like a gift that we get, because of course they're not um they're not being subjugated by us or they're not submitting to us in a way. Um it's like a fascinating concept, and it's actually it's quite um rare, right it, when when it comes to the human history of agriculture or the human history of um animal domestication.
1: Yes, usually the animals that have been really important to us, we, we, humans have been able to take them in um, and modify them. Uh, cattle are a great example. There were originally, you know, there's an original auroxen that is now extinct, and that is the, the ancestor of all of our modern breeds of cattle. So yes, there were mm-hmm. wild cattle at one time, and uh, but now they've been developed into a, a huge number of, of breeds. Uh, both for dairy cows and beef cows and one thing i would like to stress is that the honeybee is incredibly important to humans not so much for making honey by any means but for their uh, pollination services and mm-hmm. and that's been recently documented by this study that had several dozen authors worldwide and they they looked at across all of the countries in the world and all of the crops grown in all of those countries and then they Um, we're able to get information about for the amount of each crop that's produced and for each crop, what percentage of the pollination of that crop is provided by honeybees, Apis mellifera, and what percentage is provided by all the other bees. And the the estimate they came up with was that 40% of the crop pollination value is provided by honeybees. 47% of the crop pollination Service worldwide is provided by Apis mellifera, that one species. So it is a, it's an it's a species that's extremely important to humans in ways that greatly um, out uh, far, far outshadow their honey their their value as honey producers, the makers of wow. honey.
0: I mean, my assumption is that something that we didn't even realize when we were first domesticating crops and and you know and endeavoring in agriculture that we kind of felt like, oh, this is cool. We just put the seeds in the ground and then they grow, um, and we maybe didn't really have a a really good grasp of pollination back then.
1: Yeah, it was when it was done small scale. The pollinators were there um, in. in in plenty, just in in the env- in the natural environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, it's uh, where we have greatly modified in the environment, where we produce food in, in large volumes. That there are not the wild areas with supporting enough wild pollinators, the the solitary bees as well and as well as honeybees and, and bumblebees. So we do the honeybees, and now to some extent, bumblebees are the pollinators that we can. Insert into the agricultural, into these agricultural systems to provide the pollination.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was kind of wondering about that. And maybe it's something that we can come back to later, but maybe a kind of quick, quick discussion about, you know, obviously the way that we farm now globally is is completely different than the way that we farmed when we originally learned how to farm. And that's simply because we have a massive population and we've had to utilize you know really sophisticated and honestly life-saving scientific techniques in an effort to um to feed this growing population you know everything from genetic modification of organisms to sophisticated fertilization techniques and things like that but th- it does also come with a pretty big cost right i mean the fact that we're not farming in these wild areas and that the organisms that would have been kind of like the facilitator organisms aren't mm-hmm. there how do we how do we overcome that like what are some of the strategies that um that scientists use today
1: well this is that's a really important topic and it's it's one mm-hmm. that's we're wrestling with right now to fo- try to find sustainable ways of both producing the food and that includes supporting the pollinators which are involved in many of the vegetables and and fruits and nuts that we enjoy so What people are trying to do now, uh, among other things, is um, find ways to uh, reduce the the pesticide exposure of honeybees and other other insects uh, Mm -hmm. to provide more food for these pollinator insects because uh, a lot of times the insects ideally will be living in an area uh, all on their own uh, and without humans intervening. But for them to do that, they have to have enough forage and nesting sites. And here's an example that an area that I know well is in New York State, which is a big second largest apple producing state um, in the United States. The, uh, there are large orchards and there are small orchards. And the really large orchards need to have pollinators, honeybee colonies brought in. Um, smaller orchards, um, however, have enough wild areas on their perimeters and wilds for nesting sites for solitary bees and honeybees and bumblebees and food sources for all those bees that they don't actually need to have humans bring in um, hives of honeybees to to provide the pollination service. So one of the things we're learning is adjusting, maybe fine-tuning the scale of, 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 of how the the scale of the fields and such to make it possible to have the pollinators there uh, all on their own and, and thus in a mm-hmm. more uh, healthy and sustainable man- manner.
0: All right. So, I mean, obviously I think we're going to be having um, quite a conversation about the the pressures and the difficulties facing the honeybees right now and, and you know, what are some of the things that we can continue to do about that. But before we do that, I mean, maybe, maybe now would be the time to take a step back and talk about what a honeybee is? How, do, how does it live its life in the wild? What do we know about honeybees? Um, I think most people probably, and maybe, maybe it's not fair for me to speak for for the vast majority of the listeners, but probably you know know that they're these little yellow and black striped organisms that we see you know s- around these hives and that somehow <laughs> they make honey. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't think. I have, and uh, yeah, I've heard of like that there's a queen bee and that there are worker bees or drones. Um, you mentioned the, the little grubs or, you know, the little larvae that, um, Mm -hmm. that are in the hive. I'm not sure I fully understand the hive dynamic, the family structure and, um, you know, how, how do they all work together and where does honey come
1: from? Okay. Yeah. Let's start it. This is right. Basically quick review of the, basic biology of a honeybee uh the honeybees Uh, i want to start by um repeating something you just mentioned that a colony of honeybees is a family it is the queen bee is the mother of everybody in that in the colony and the colony has workers which are her daughters and the colony also has drones which are the the sons of of the queen and the the sex determination system is that if the when a queen bee lays an egg, if she um, fertilizes the egg by releasing some sperm onto the egg as it's being produced, it will develop. It'll uh, develop into a female. If the the egg is left unfertilized, it develops into a male. So,
0: and that's her call.
1: Yeah, that's her call. She's got little valves uh-huh. where she can dose out the, the sperm or not. And inside, these live in cavities. Uh, white boxes, in the case of beehives, or hollow trees or caves in the wild, and inside those, each of one of those cavities, there are bees build uh, beeswax combs built of beeswax that hang vertically, and there, these are these famous combs built with hexagonal cells, which, and each cell is a, can be used either for storing honey or pollen, or it can be used as a little cradle for. Um, producing the the young bees, the new bees, hmm. and the typical population of a honeybee colony. Well, the size of it would be on the order of a oh, well, it would be it's typically about forty liters, which is about ten gallons. <laughs> so wow. that's, the, that's the that's the typical nest cavity size, and the bees will build their beeswax combs in these curtains that hang vertically in the cavity, and the in that cavity, be it a hive or a, or a tree hollow. The upper part of the cavity is where the bees um, stockpile their honey. The lower half of the of the combs that they've built is where they use for their nursery area, where the young bees are produced. Mm-hmm. And up Within the colony, the worker bees, uh, which are the vast, vast majority of the members of the colony, some 95%, the other 5% being the drones those bees they live about 30 days and as a rough rule of thumb the first 10 days they're working as a nurse bee rearing more bees inside the hive the next 10 days they're working as a a, a bee that's involved in mostly involved in storing the food and building the combs and the last third of a worker bee's life is devoted to working outside the hive as a forager, going out and collecting the nectar, which the bees will turn into honey, and the pollen that is their source of fats and proteins. And they will also collect water. Every living organism needs water, and bee colony needs water too. So Mm -hmm. these so-called forager bees can go out and collect water as well. So, And that's, that's the basic structure of a honeybee colony. One thing that's unique about honeybee colonies is how they get through the winter in cold parts of the world. All of the other insects, when it gets cold, they go into they become dormant. They'll go into what's called mm-hmm. diapause, where they just they fill their bodies with some antifreeze material, and then they just let their bodies um, chill down to and even to sub freezing temperatures. Honeybees are unique. Honeybee colonies are unique in that they. Fight the cold, and all winter long inside their inside their hive or their tree cavity, they're producing enough heat with their with their by using their muscles to generate heat to keep the to keep the mass of bees warm. And so they're they all winter long the bees are. Kind of toasty warm inside their nests, and incidentally, that's why that is why bees store up honey. It's not for our pleasure. It's, it's <laughs> the, the honey is their winter heating fuel. They will they will burn through about uh, I guess, I've forgotten quite what the numbers are, but in in where I am, where the winters are cold, they'll they'll burn through um, about twenty kilograms of or fifty pounds of honey in a winter. So a couple of pounds each week, and the heat production's about it's about 40 watts so it's inside a inside a oh, hollow tree or a beehive it's almost as if there's a little 40 watt light bulb that's it's <laughs> burning all winter long or it's producing that much heat and the bees cluster tightly together and they they can make a very well insulated ball of bees so they can keep themselves warm even when it's very cold outside
0: oh that's really cool so so to be clear the honey is what they produce In order to eat, and the wax Mm -hmm. is what Mm -hmm. they produce in order to kind of have like it's an engineering material. It's what builds out their house. Okay, so where where do both of these things come from? Like, how do they actually make honey and wax?
1: Yes, let's start with the honey. honey. The honey is made by the bees by going to flowers, and from the flowers they collect nectar, and the nectar is in the flowers because the uh, it, it is the lure that the plants produce in their flowers to, to cause the bees and flies and other pollinators to come and pollinate the flowers. It's the bees' reward for doing that work. And um, that's typically, on average, the the nectar in a flower is actually quite sweet. It's On average, it's about 40% sugar. And a bee will, if you're a worker bee, you'll go to lots of flowers and you'll collect a, a, a a volume of this nectar, you'll bring it back to the nest. You'll pass it off to other bees inside the nest, who are not foragers. Some of the middle-aged bees, and they will take that nectar and they will, they will put it up in the honeycomb region of the nest. They'll smear out the load of nectar that the, that they've received from the forager onto the walls of the comb, and there the water can evaporate out quite readily. So, and they what they will what they're doing is they're converting that forty percent sugar solution up into a into about an eighty-two percent sugar solution—that's honey—and ah. the reason that's not only for economy of space, but it, when a, when a sugar solution is that concentrated, it, it's um, uh, bacteria and yeast cannot thrive in it. The osmotic pressure is so high; the the t- tendency to dry out things that fall into honey is so strong that uh, that it is it is preserved. It preserves itself very nicely.
0: Oh, yeah, and that's why you sometimes will hear people talk about the fact that honey has these sort of antimicrobial properties. It's really just that it itself doesn't readily get infected, right?
1: Yeah, it, it is antiseptic, just as you said, or antimicrobial, because mm. it just sucks the water out of any any microbe that is uh, that has the misfortune of getting coated with honey uh, So yeah, and it is indeed. It is a it is an early, early antiseptic material, one of the earliest that humans came upon.
0: Very cool, and that also explains um, kind of the the process by which honey is made. Explains why honey from different regions and honey from different flowering sites or different um, plants um, have different flavors and different properties.
1: That's right. Yeah, the flavor is um, is produced not by the bees, but it's produced by the plants. that, uh, And it's usually the flavors of the honey are a carryover of the fragrances that the plants have put into their flowers and thus into their nectar to attract the bees. So as just as we have different flowers that have very different uh, aromas, likewise the honey that comes from different plants has very different kind of fla- aromas of honey.
0: Mm, and you'll hear them, like you'll hear different honeys referred to based on those kinds of flowers or based on those kinds of plants, like clover honey or like in New Zealand, manuka honey.
1: Right. Or yeah, in, in North America, some of the prized honeys are uh, buckwheat, though some people think it smells like dirty socks. <laughs> 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 and then there's a, a goldenrod. There's, yes, there's, there's uh, probably uh, a hundred different honey plants. Uh, in north Mm. america each with its distinctive aroma and flavor and flavor of its honey
0: interesting okay all right so okay starting to understand this a little bit better you've got a mom and there are some a small percentage of the hive has are are boys and those male drones are there to um basically to get mom ready to lay some eggs and um Mm -hmm. uh and then you've got these worker bees oh does she not lay eggs
1: Well, no, mom (laughs) does lay the eggs, but her sons are not going to be fertilizing her. Oh. The drones produced in a colony will, uh, they will go out and mate with other queens, but it will be queens from other colonies.
0: Oh, and that that helps keep the the genetics really um, uh, diverse. Oh, very cool. So it is their job to mate. That's kind of their, their whole focus in life, but they are mating with other queens.
1: That's right. That's a curious feature of the biology of honeybees. It's very important that the queen mates with multiple males so that she can. her colony is endowed with great diversity, genetic diversity among the colony's members. That, and that is, that's so important because it means that the colony has a, a lot of different individu- individuals endowed differently for fighting different sorts of diseases and doing mm. different sorts of jobs. Oh right because
0: they're so closely um compacted together it's like constantly living on an airplane like you would just be sick all the time
1: (laughs) yeah that's actually a really good analogy they're living (laughs) yeah they're living in a space where their air is shared their food is shared their living accommodations are shared it's it's a parasites or pathogens uh paradise almost and so uh the bees have to do a lot of different things. Another thing that they do to deal with that that risk of infections is they collect resins. That was one material I didn't mention earlier. Besides the mm. nectar and the pollen and the water, they go out and collect tree resins. And trees are making these resins uh, because they're antimicrobial. They will put them around their buds and things before they open up, to, so the molds and things don't um, damage the the plants themselves. And the bees collect those resins and bring them in, and they'll when they they'll coat the walls of their nest with uh, or hive with the resins, and they will smear these resins, give a light um, varnish of the combs, the beeswax combs as well, with the varnish, and that and those are these are filled with as a antimicrobial compounds that the plants are producing and that the bees make use of themselves.
0: Oh, is this the the material that's sometimes used in like alternative medicine? It's called like propolis or Propolis?
1: Yes, that's right. It's called yeah Propolis and um, Propolis. and it, that name comes from the fact that sometimes the bees will um reduce the entrance, the entrance, the size of the entrance opening of their nest or hive by building a wall of the out of this tree resin. And that's what. Apparently the, the Greeks saw that and that was Propolis was a name that they they gave to the material and it means before the city. Oh wow. Right, oh, the cool. entrance of the hive.
0: Yeah, I love that. Oh, very cool. Okay, so so we've got um we've got mom, we've got drones that go out and mate with other moms, we've got worker bees that have this three-tier stage of life. And those um, are, are the daughters. We, yeah. The, yeah, those are the daughters, and they make the wax, which we'll get to in a second, they make the honey, they make the propolis. Before we get to the wax and how it's made, um, I'm wondering how does queen bee become queen bee? Like, how does she get that distinction versus just becoming a regular worker bee?
1: Yeah, uh, or to say that even more precisely, how does you take an egg that's been a you know, honeybee egg and it's that it's been fertilized that that's going to be, produce a female? And the question is, what determines whether that egg? Develops into a queen, or that egg develops into a worker. And Mm -hmm. it it, um, this is a long-standing mystery, and I don't know as we fully understand the the mechanism. But it has entirely to do with the environment in which the egg develops. If it's if the larva hatches out of an egg and it and it is lavishly fed with a material called royal jelly, then it will develop into a queen. If it gets just a smidgen of royal jelly and and uh, then it develops into a worker. So huh. it's all—it's all about what, how it, a fertilized egg, which will destined to make a female, what, what it's, how it's fed, that it determines whether it's a queen or a worker.
0: All right, guys, I want to take a quick break from today's episode to thank its sponsor, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community for the creator in all of us, and they've got thousands of classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and so much more. The classes are on demand. You can learn at your own pace and you can dive into anything that you really love. Like When I dig through the offerings on Skillshare, I'm overwhelmed with options. I'm loving all of the data and computer science courses, the statistics courses, um, learning how to draw, even things that um, you don't think of like needing a class for, but are actually really helpful, like mastering your morning routine or getting organized in your life so that you can be more efficient, more effective, and generally more at piece. Oh, fave. Okay, this one's going to the top of my list. Scientific illustration for busy people. Come on. That sounds like so much fun. So guys, right now you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare and you can get two months for free. All you've got to do is sign up at Skillshare.com slash Nerdy. That's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started today by heading to Skillshare.com slash nerdy to sign up. That's S K I L L S H A R E dot com slash nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Whoa. And then is the outcome, you know, we know a queen by its, um, Behavior by its role is it also physically or physiologically different than worker bees?
1: Yes, it's both. Yeah, both physically, morpho- and thus morphologically and and mm-hmm. physiologically very different. It's it, The weight of a queen is about oh, I think it's about one hundred and fifty percent the weight of a worker bee, so she's bigger and bulkier. Mm-hmm. And mo- what's most striking about her is that um, queen is that her abdomen is bulging with. What are um, ovarials, uh, the, the mm. structures that produce the eggs? Whereas in a worker, they're just the workers do have a couple of these egg-laying tubes in their in their abdomens, but they're generally they're uh, they're inactive. Whereas a queen will have uh, several hundred, and so she can lay, and so she's a really um, productive egg egg producer. Mm-hmm. A queen bee can lay more than a thousand eggs in a day, uh, and when you think about it, that's you just go through this simple math. You can see why she has to lay so many. If if a colony is going to have thirty thousand bees, and each bee only lives thirty days, you're going to have to rear a thousand bees a day to keep that thirty thousand wow. colony going. So it's it's quite a it's quite an operation. Um,
0: oh my gosh! And what what happens when when Mama Bee when Queen Bee dies? Like, are there other bees that are like next in line?
1: Yeah. What what usually happens? And though it's actually not we. The topic that's still a bit mysterious. Um, somehow, the worker bees sense when when their mother queen is starting to senesce, they mm-hmm. will take steps to rear a replacement. And um, and so and then so in colonies, sometimes a beekeeper working through his or her hives will see there's two queens in that hive, and that's mom mm-hmm. and one of the daughters, uh, this uh, successor, working side by side. So the colony is potentially um potentially immortal in that uh because of that of, of that mechanism.
0: Ugh, that's so neat. Oh my gosh, I'm learning so much. This is so exciting. Okay, so the 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 kind of last component that we didn't get to. I mean, there's a million things we haven't gotten to yet. But in terms of the structure and the function is the actual wax itself. So we know how the yes, the yes. honey is made. Is what is the wax made out of?
1: The the wax um is made out of the sugars that the bees consume and inside their in, in the bodies of worker bees there are special glands in their in their abdomens in the bottom of their abdomens a series of plates called wax glands where they can take the carbohydrate from the sugars and convert it into wax um, and wax is a it's just a different it's a it's a different kind of organic chemical than sugar so they have to do a lot of fancy organic chemistry inside their body to make these wax molecules and they the bees produce them as little in bee lore they're called mere little wax flakes or scales and on the bottom of a worker bee's body there are eight of these little structures so each bee can can churn out eight wax scales at a time and then they they come out like a little sliver um, and they they then will a bee that's making wax will grab them with her hind leg and pass it to her mid leg, to her fore leg, and then into, it's where she can then work it with her fore legs and her mandibles and make that little sheet, little um, platelet of wax that she produced, each one into a ball of wax, and then add that to wherever the colony is building its comb. So the, the, the bees that are building the comb are not only shaping the building material, but they're also producing the building material itself.
0: That's so cool. And of course, the wax, like, you know, we, we talk about honey when we talk about honeybees, because, you know, that's what we think of first. We've even called them that, honeybees. But the wax is also a vital kind of commercial product for for human use as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I don't know a terribly large amount about that, but it's beeswax has its, it certainly has historically had its place. Um, uh, it, it was one of the very early kinds of plastic materials humans had Mm. um for sealing things up um for for making cosmetics um it was often used for um, a source of light the catholic church was famous for its use of preferring to use beeswax candles and uh so yeah it is it's a it's it's it is a one of the original such plasticky type materials. It's been largely superseded by artificial plastics yeah. these days. Oh,
0: it's really really interesting. You know, so so all of this kind of structure and function that we've been talking about, and, and this kind of innate organization, is this all specific to only honeybees and? follow-up. Is the honeybee like one species? Is it multiple species? What percentage of all bees are honeybees?
1: Interesting question. Um, There are, let's see, I think there's about 15,000 species, maybe it's up to 20,000 species of, of bees worldwide. Okay. And I guess my colleague in the entomology department here at Cornell, Brian Danforth, he could answer that question very precisely, I'm sure. Anyhow, so let's say it's 20,000. There are 10 species of honeybees worldwide. These are the 10 species in the genus Apis. That's the honeybee genus. So oh, wow. So what, what's 10 divided by 20,000? That's like, you know, some .00. <laughs> <point laughs> .00, yeah, exactly. It's a very small percentage of the world's bee species our are, are honeybee species. That said, huh. as we've as we've talked about, in terms of their n- numerosity, their abundance, they they're they're heavy hitters in the sense mm-hmm. that, as, as we talked about, of the pollinators in uh, in producing our food, uh, nearly fifty percent of the pollination service is provided by this uh, is provided by Apis mellifera, just one of those species of of honeybee. So. There aren't a lot of honeybee species, but there are a lot of honeybees.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, and Apis, so you said Apis is the geni- the genus, and then there are about 10 species within that genus.
1: That's right. That's right. Yep. And
0: which is the one that, um, you said mellifera, what, what is M- it called?
1: Mellifera. That means... Mellifera. Uh, yeah, that means, uh, it's, that mellifera means, is Latin for uh, honey, honey carrying bee. Um, mm. it, it should have been and this was a just the person who named it got, had his Latin a little bit wrong it should have been Malefica he wanted to say the honey maker <laughs> and, he, and so it should have said Malefica fica, not malefura so just, that's a little that's a little awkwardness in our nomenclature about honey bees. they're, they're names for being honey carriers and they don't really carry honey they make honey So their names. Oh my gosh, that's so
0: funny! I love that. And is that I'm I'm just googling it right now. That's what we what we would also refer to as the Western honeybee.
1: Yes, that's right. That is the Apis mellifera is the honeybee whose range includes Europe, Western Mm -hmm. Asia, and Africa. And if you go east of those regions. Then you'll you'll come into the other nine species of honeybees when you get into mm. um, Eastern Asia, um, and yeah, then you will get into the other nine species, the range of the other nine species of honeybees.
0: And what about in the U.S.?
1: We had we historically we did not have honeybees living in the Americas. Uh, recently, a fossil was found of a honeybee that did live in. Uh, In the Americas, but that was about 17 million years ago, and apparently it came across, (laughs) and then it it went extinct during a cooling period. But uh, it came across from Asia, uh, just like ourselves, just like humans. It came across the Bering land bridge um, up in the Bering Bering Strait region, Mm -hmm. and uh, but then it and it the fossil was found in Nevada. It's a beautiful fossil. It's very clear. It's a worker honeybee, but it it died out. We don't know what its range was, but that was seventeen million years ago. And then the honeybee was not present. Uh, no, no species of bee called a, called the a, that could be called the honeybee was was found in North America until they were introduced by Westerners uh, from Europeans. Mm-hmm. And those uh, the, the records the earliest record I know is I think sixteen twenty two an introduction to Jamestown. Virginia and then in 1640 into Boston Massachusetts those were by english settlers are there may have been introductions by spanish settlers even before that but uh, but nobody's done a a good analysis of the the bills of lading of the of the uh, spanish ships that's a rich topic for scholarship
0: that's interesting so even though they are wild here in the US they were actually introduced so in a way they're kind of an invasive species
1: yes they they invaded um humans introduced them and mm-hmm. this shortly after and they they were brought in the you know, they were brought in ships sailing ships uh during the winter from europe england uh to n- north america and they were in, living in what are called skeps these uh straw hives and once the colonies, once they got here, they did very, very well in the eastern United States. It's uh, it was just the eastern United States with its deciduous forest is much like their homeland in Europe. In fact, mm-hmm. Europe and North America used to be one continent together, so we have a, we share a lot of plants and so forth. And so, when the when the breeze were honeybees were introduced to North America, they. They would go through their normal biology of casting swarms, and those swarms moved into the woods and they spread out. And you can, I I talk about in my book that uh, a very nice study a gentleman did, um, uh, uh, Kritzky, where he went back through the diaries and letters of, of early settlers, and he could and just looking for any mention of people going getting honey out of trees and whatnot, and he was able to document the spread over 150 years from the east coast the eastern seaboard in the us over to the mississippi river and that that's pretty fast actually so uh, so they they took to north america uh, very very well and and they uh, were also introduced to south america and central america so now the honeybee lives in throughout the new world
0: interesting and obviously really took over a lot of those kind of pollinating Roles that maybe some of the other organisms were were filling in prior to that. I guess uh, I'm, I'm interested to know. You know, we talked about these really unique dynamics um, of of honeybee life. Are those are aspects of those common to other species of bees as well? But they just don't make honey, or like, do other species of bees even live in hives?
1: Most the vast majority of 99.9 percent of the other species of honeybees are what we would call solitary bees. They, mm. they, their life cycle is um, very individualistic. Uh, you have a female that emerges in the, um, that will get mated at some point during the year, and then she will build a nest on her own. It could be in the ground, or it could be in a hollow stem. And she'll rear a little family in there, and then she, then she leaves them, and she goes off and dies. And then they, they will emerge the next summer, and so that's that's how their lives work. Um, and that's the vast majority. We call, that's why we call them solitary. They li- they lead largely solitary lives. Just a, mm-hmm. a female c- having mated, caring for a, a nest with with a with a number of young in them. There are a few other species that are that are social um, uh, in North America. They're the bumblebees, and then in South America. Middle and Central America, and in Africa, there's a whole other group of bees that are a kind of honeybee, but we call them stingless bees. They also like our like the familiar honeybees. they um, they live in colonies groups, and they store up honey um, to have a food reserve uh, but um, and they're very diverse. I think there's about five hundred species of them, but they don't they don't get much much press in North America they uh, because they mm-hmm. don't live here, but they get they're mm-hmm. very they're very um, fascinating and very um, compelling, (laughs) behaviorally compelling social bees. But um, we just don't hear much about them because we don't see them. We don't have them here.
0: And what about non-honeybees? Just what we think of as like regular bees, that 20,000 species that you talked about before. Are they social? Do they have some of these same kinds of um, uh, lifestyles?
1: Some, um, they're very diverse in terms of their lifestyles. None of them have the, the large colonies. And um, that we have in in uh, in honeybees apis mellifera. Um, there are some there are a few species in which there's a little overlap of a couple of female several females w- will work together and share a nest and so they're social in that sense and we have the bumblebees where the those uh, the bumblebees are truly social like honeybees but their colonies are not as large and mm-hmm. when I say truly social I mean that they have, a queen who makes a nest and has daughters that stay with her and don't reproduce but are, are her helpers, just like in honeybees. So mm-hmm. bumblebees are, are the closest, um, in terms of their social biology, are the closest to honeybees. But their their That's... colonies are, are small, and um, they're very very well adapted to cold, cooler climates. They don't overwinter by storing up honey and keeping warm all winter long, they instead with bumblebees, it's the the queens produced at the end of one summer um burrow down into the ground below frost level, I think and um and then we'll spend the winter in solitude and then pop out in the spring and start things over,
0: so Tom, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, obviously you have dedicated your life to learning about honeybees and their you know, fascinating, um, ecology, they're fascinating physiology. Um, you know, there's, there's so many aspects of it there, how social they are. Is that not like just unique among organisms? I mean, it, it seems to me, especially among insects that it's, it's such a sophisticated, um, a strategy for you know maintaining the species that I mean it's almost hard to believe when you really start to dig into it.
1: Yeah, you've put your finger on a really important point, and um, so I'll answer. I want to address a couple of thoughts that bubbled up when you were just um, raising this point. One is that um, first of all, yes, the, the the fascination of honeybees is their is their sociality. They are what I would call beautifully social insects. And that is also the secret to their success. They can, they can, thanks to their uh, social system, they can get through cold winters, they can stock stockpile food, they can thwart enemies, um, and they can, yeah, they do all these very, very, uh, lead these very sophisticated lives. However, they are not the only highly social insects by any means. In fact, the, their, um, if we shift from away from bees over to ants, and the other, mm. ma- other major group of uh, and, uh, social insects, there we find even you might have to say even more spectacular animal insect societies, um, and those have been so beautifully described by E. O. Wilson and Bert Hölldobler in, in their books, and so they've devoted their lives to, to the study of ants, as I've done, devoted mine to study of bees.
0: I love that. And you guys have been able to, to share those stories with, you know, with people like us, like myself, and those who are listening, who obviously um, may not, you know, we can, we can watch them, we can watch nature documentaries about them, we can spend time near them, but may not ever have the kind of appreciation that you have, because you're studying them from so many different angles. So it's like a real honor to be able to learn about them through your work.
1: Thank you. It's um, for me. It's 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 a real. Uh, it's an honor to have been able to make a living, making discoveries of how these honeybee colonies work and how they live in the wild. Um, so it's uh, I feel like a, a ver- very very lu- very lucky human being to have had this this opportunity to work this closely with this one. Really, um, just utterly. Uh, it, it really is a just an amazing. It's an amazing insect. I mean, one of the things that makes it so amazing is their ability to communicate. It's the only insect that's, that where an individual can give another individual instructions to say, go out, go out to that location, and here's the instructions. Go to that direction and that distance, and you'll find a rich food source. Um uh, that's there's only the only other species that can do that is is the honeybee and ourselves and maybe and maybe some ospreys but um that kind of thing makes it <laughs> makes it really um just uh, utterly fascinating for me and and for all of the other people that are study bees either professionally or um, as a beekeeper and there's lots and lots of, of people that have been captivated by the bees and so captivated they they keep them in their backyards in their hives
0: yeah i mean that's that's incredible and how what is their language based on obviously it's not linguistic language but what how how what is their communication style is it through um dance
1: yeah <laughs> that's, that's a right dumb that's thing to call it. is
0: it dancing <laughs>
1: it is called the waggle dance and oh, it's performed it's performed in the inside the nest by a bee that has found a rich source of pollen or nectar or or water if the colony's thirsty and um it's a little hard to explain in words without making a drawing, but basically she does a, she does a ritualized reenactment of her flight out to the flower patch on, inside the nest on the combs. And so
0: huh. it involves
1: her walking forward on the combs, and she can indicate the distance by how long she walks forward while making a buzzing sound with her, with her wings. So the greater the distance, the longer each each run of her, what we call the waggle dance, lasts. So um, that waggle run can last from a fraction of a second up to several seconds, and then so that can code the distance. And then how she indicates the direction is by how she the angle, she's doing the dance on a vertical surface, the side of one of these curtains of comb in the nest and if she if she's does it doing her waggling motion or, or her dance while she's walking straight up that she's telling the other bees that the target of flowers that she's she's um, indicating is in the direction of whatever direction the Sun currently is so what? These, yeah so it's it is remarkable it's it really is a unique um, abstract form of communication and uh, when it was discovered, it was so striking. Uh, the the original person who discovered it, a gentleman named, very good scientist named Karl von Frisch in Germany, he he didn't fully understand it himself for twenty years. <laughs> he thought he sort of had a, these, I wouldn't say blinders on, but he he assumed that the bees were doing something much simpler than they were. But finally, he was did some experiments that revealed to them, oh, these bees in their communication system, they have words for. Dr- distance and direction and then he looked closely and he figured out how it how it works so yeah it is it's that kind of social beauty of social life which which is compelling to me and i think is compelling to to most um most beekeepers and, and other bee bio, honeybee biologists
0: Oh, it's absolutely incredible. And of course, you know, you mentioned previously that the sociality and um and really the communication um, that's unique is also really the key to their success as a species. and and that they have been quite a successful species, a- accounting for, you know, almost half of of pollination. That said, we also know that human um activities, as is so often the case are really threatening the honeybee right now, so I would love to maybe take the the last bit of our chat to talk about what some of the the threats that these organisms uh, might be facing what's the difference between the threats that kept bees are dealing with versus what's going on in the wild and kind of what can we what can we learn from from these
1: bees yeah that's these and you've put your finger on a, a really important subject regarding the human honeybee human being honeybee relationship right now we're we're doing a number of things that uh, with the bees that are living under our management in beekeepers hives we're doing a number of things that are making life harder and harder for these these beautiful bees um one is is very is very simply described We're, we're spreading poisons in the environment um Using lots of pesticides in in the fields where the bees are brought to do their pollination work, and that's it that's a that's a deadly combination of bringing bees in and then spraying the fields with um, insecticides uh, these would be spraying in in orchards and things like that so um, that's one one combination another is that mm-hmm. uh, we're we've introduced um, some parasites. Uh, Particularly, a little mite from a, an Asian species of honeybee was introduced to the European and African species of honeybee, and this little mite is very good mm. at transmitting the bees' viruses. It's a great vector for for some nasty viruses of the bees, and that's that's been a that's probably been a, an equally bad killer of honeybee colonies, both managed colonies and wild colonies. Um, so that's another thing that we've, we've done to make life hard for honeybees. And then there's a, a long-standing aspect of the human-being-honeybee relationship is that we've always been uh, unintentionally and, and, and thus inadvertently, um, we've been making life hard for them by just putting them in hives and managing the colonies to be very productive of honey. Um, hmm. It's a complicated topic, but there's a lot of things about the life of, of a honeybee colony that are made more difficult when they're living under human, ma- human management. Here's just one example. Beekeepers, for and I'm a beekeeper, for our convenience, we put, the, we put our hives together in groups, which are called apiaries or bee yards, mm-hmm. and that's convenient for the human being but for the bees, it's it's not so great because it means if one colony gets sick, the illness, the pathogen or parasite that's causing that illness spreads easily to the other colonies, which it can be just a few feet away. So that's not too, that's not good for the bees, and that's very different from how they live in the wild, where they're mm-hmm. usually living about half a mile apart from between one hollow tree housing a bee colony and another.
0: No. Mm-hmm.
1: So another is that we. As we so often do with agricultural animals, we we manipulate them to be extremely productive for the things that we want. In the case of honeybees, guess what that is? It's honey. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of the a lot of the um, technology and uh, uh, skill of beekeeping uh, or trade of beekeeping is making honeybee colonies into very large units, um, having the colonies grow to a larger size than they would in nature instead of growing to 20 or 30,000 to they grow up to 60,000 or even more bees so they have a huge workforce so they can make, and then they will make up, make, huh. store up lots and lots of honey. So that, and that means that the colonies are even more prone to diseases because they're, they've got all these resources inside them for the parasites and pathogens to exploit. So that's another thing that we do, and then another third thing, one that we see very dramatically in North America is we, we, we ship. I think it's close to two thirds of the honeybee colonies in North America are transported every spring from wherever they are, whether it's in Florida or New York State or um, wherever, out to California into the Central Valley of California for the almond pollination, and that's mm. that. That is just very hard on the bees and i think statistically only about half the colonies that are br- taken out to those almond orchards are healthy when they come out uh, or wow. are still alive <laughs> when they come out because there's just so much spread of disease and the trip itself is is apparently pretty hard on the bees it's being trucked thousands and thousands of miles um,
0: Gosh, I had so, no idea. I knew almonds were like really intensive when it came to w- water usage, and that that was always something that was like, Ooh, I don't know if almond milk is the best alternative. Um, but I had no idea what kind of an impact um, almond farming had on bees.
1: Yeah, almond poly- almond production is is not only water intensive; it's bee intensive. It needs a, every every you know, every flower if it's going to make a fruit or a seed or a, a nut. Um, has to have a, a pollinator um, show up and, and move the pollen from one one plant to another. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's 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 really hard. All beekeepers love their bees, but they don't always. We they're not every action that beekeepers take is is a what you would have to say is a loving or caring action, even though, and that's something we're just starting to realize because one of the curious things about honeybees and bees and beekeeping is that it's only in about the last few decades that we've known anything about the natural lives of bees see yeah. beekeepers beekeepers developed hives th- starting thousands of years ago as we talked about and we've never and once people once human beings got bees in hives then they focused on their lives of the bees and the hives and how to manipulate them and how to you know I, i'd have to say honestly <laughs> exploit the lives of these bees living in the in the beekeepers hives where those could be boxes or skeps whatever uh, log hives mm-hmm. whatever so our focus is almost every beekeeper's focus has always been on the bees living in his or her hives which is very unnatural and so now we're we've gone back and and looked at how bees are living and and Wendell Berry put it really nicely I'll, I'll paraphrase what he, one of his famous quotes and he was referring to agricultural practices in general he says we've never really known what we were doing because we've never known what we were undoing and we only can know what we're undoing if we would see what nature is doing if we were doing nothing <laughs> and that's yeah. so apt for bees and beekeeping beekeepers have not we don't know what we're doing to the bees because we haven't known what we're undoing because we didn't know what their natural lives were like but that's that's what um, I and others have been looking at intensively for, uh, as they say, for the past about 40 years now.
0: And that really ultimately is kind of the thesis of of your new book, The Lives of Bees, the untold story of the honeybee in the wild. Because in understanding kind of the, suce- the success of this species in the wild, we can actually learn from them and maybe apply some of those strategies that have been you know, honed by hundreds of thousands, millions of years, um, and and utilize them in in our beekeeping.
1: Yeah, we I, th- I think that's I think that's right, and that's one of the things I I the ideas that I present in this book. It's not going to be this idea of letting bees live more naturally. Probably will not, well, certainly will not apply to the commercial beekeeper with thousands or tens of thousands of hives of bees. But it, it's very relevant to the. To the hobby beekeeper that might have a a handful of colonies, where they can let the they don't need the high production. They're not trucking their colonies around. They can be they can give the bees uh, let them live kinder gentler lives. Um, And so that's yes, I think that's uh, one of the positive aspects of the of this. Growing body of knowledge of the natural lives of bees, and most beekeepers are small-scale beekeepers, are hobbyists, and they, they have the bees' interests first and foremost. That's for them. It's a lot like I like to like to compare the what I see is the two kinds of beekeeping, and it's like the difference. But one on the one hand, you've got the small-scale beekeeper, and on the other hand, you've got the large commercial, and it's much like the difference between people that enjoy watching birds or bird watchers and people that grow birds for uh, eggs and uh, eggs and meat and you know poultry mm-hmm. farming and i think there's room for there's certainly room for both of those approaches and they're very different they're very different and and they're both i i think they're both valid but we have to recognize that there is there are these two ways of working with the bees not just not just managing them for maximum honey production or maximum pollination value but but it's perfectly valid to to enjoy a colony of bees just as a as a living system. It is beautiful in its own right. Even if it makes no honey, yeah. it produces only its pollination inadvertently.
0: Yeah, they are intrinsically fascinating, just being themselves. Um and of course, you you've shared those stories so beautifully. In your book, Thomas um, Tom, sorry. Before we before we wrap up this chat, you know, I um, I close every episode of my show by asking my guests the same two questions, and they're sort of big picture questions. So <laughs> you could obviously take a moment to think about your answers, but I, I would really love for you to weigh in, especially considering the unique perspective that you um, that you bring to the conversation. So, okay if you're ready, here they come. Number one, when you think about the future in whatever context is kind of relevant to you, it could be contextualized by the work that you do, by, you know, where you are along the developmental process of life. It could be a personal thing, a vocational thing, even a cosmic thing. Um, Number one, what is the thing that really does keep you up the most at night? The thing that you're most worried about? Maybe you're getting to be borderline, I don't know, pessimistic, cynical, you know, some, something that you're like, this is not okay. And on the flip side of that, what is the thing that, if you had to pick one, um, that you're like genuinely, authentically, actually optimistic about? You're, you're very much looking forward to?
1: Well, the first one's easier because it's so okay. obvious it's it's just the pervasive damage to our planet uh, loss of water uh, mm. rising temperatures pollution with pesticides and everything else um, yeah so that that's that's the one that keeps me up at night i mean i just yeah. i I'm, I'm, I'm almost 70 years old and i can just see it it's so obvious when i was a kid the fields were filled with insects and now they're not you, you go out in the e- summer evening the thing would be a symphony of insects and now you just don't you don't see that you don't hear that don't see that mm-hmm. um, what gives me hope or optimism uh, what gives me hope and optimism is knowledge we're, we're learning more and more about what where we're going wrong and that's of course the first step knowing what we're doing knowing what we're undoing is the first step towards I think to getting it Getting it back to figuring out what how to how to stop doing that and uh, and and be more benign to our uh, to our planet and thus ultimately to ourselves and to our to our children
0: absolutely what a beautiful and elegant response to those questions well. Tom, thank you so very much for coming on the show today. I have learned so much. Um, I, I know I still have a million questions, but I feel like my basic questions <laughs> have been answered. Everybody, the the book is The Lives of Bees, The Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild by Dr. Thomas D. Seeley. Thank you so much for joining me. It was it was just an absolute blast.
1: Thank you, Car, for, for having me. It's been really my pleasure. A great, great, great show. And I'm really glad I could contribute to it.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we can all get together to talk nerdy.